Welcome to Total Convexity, a weekly financial podcast that caters to professional finance individuals, high net worth investors, family offices, and other sophisticated financial professionals. Join our hosts, hedge fund manager Jim Wang and Henrik Neohaus, as they explore the interconnected world of global macroeconomics, central banks, and capital markets. Comprehending the intricate web of global macroeconomics, central bank policies, and capital markets isn't just an option, it's a necessity. Whether you're a chief investment officer, financial analyst, entrepreneur, or simply someone curious about how the global economy and capital markets function, this podcast serves as your compass through the intricacies of the global financial landscape. In each episode, we will delve deep into the influential factors shaping our world, from global economic trends and central bank policies to capital markets and trading strategies. We will demystify financial jargon, clarify complex numerical data, and provide you with insights from experts in the field. Total Convexity, episode one, is recorded on September the 22nd, 2023. Here are your hosts, my co-host, Jim Wang, and me, Henrik Neuhaus. Welcome, everyone, to the Total Convexity podcast, your window on the world of a global macro. I'm your host, Jim Wang, and I'm thrilled to embark on this exciting journey through the complex, interconnected web of global financial markets. I have more than 25 years of experience in the financial industry, both as an asset allocator and a hedge fund manager with multi-billion institutions. I currently run Riverdown Capital Management. I have been humbled by the markets, and I hope to share my lessons with the listeners. Joining me is my co-host, Henrik Neuhaus. Hello, everyone. I'm your co-host, Henrik Neuhaus. I work with Jim, and my background is as a risk manager, creator of investment strategies and derivatives trading. I've also been a quant. I'm delighted to co-host this podcast with you, Jim. Our mission is simple, to bring Wall Street insights to a broader audience and tell things how they are. So, Jim, tell me, why do you want to start this podcast anyway? We are easily overwhelmed with information of varying degrees, accuracy and meaningfulness. The volume of information is huge. Our aim is to help listeners cut through the noise and focus on what truly matters. Moreover, the financial world often uses unnecessary complex jargon, which can sometimes seem designed to showcase expertise. We believe in simplifying those concepts for everyday listeners. While there are numerous excellent financial services and tools and podcasts available, it is essential to be aware that some may have a hidden agenda attempting to sell product and services. We are not here to promote any product, any services. So why do we do this? I'm motivated by the desire to document my thought process as I navigate the financial market, allowing for honest reflection. This process also enforces discipline by maintaining a trading and investment journal. Of course, it is immensely satisfying if our insight can benefit others and help them learn. Great. 
So um, why do we name our, pod our podcast Total Convexity? In the realm of finance, convexity essentially means that for a given level of risk, the potential gain always the potential loss. Successful investment and trading hinge not on predicting the future, but on establishing an asymmetry between the risk and the reward. This can be accomplished through various means. From the asset valuation perspective, when an asset is traded significantly below its intrinsic value, the potential upside greatly surpasses the downside. Market positioning is also pivotal. For instance, when a position or investment team becomes crowded, the downside potential often exceeds the upside. If assets are priced for a particular outcome with extremely high implied probability and heavy market participation, having a differentiated view can result in a highly convex investment thesis. In addition to formulating a convex investment thesis, it is essential to develop a trading process that fosters a convex outcome. For example, a common trading adage is to cut losses early while allowing profits to grow, thus creating an asymmetry in risk and reward. This can also be achieved through long options, where losses are limited to the premium paid, while the upside potential remains open. However, it is important to note that option convexity is not without cost because options are decaying assets. They suffer from time decay or theta decay. Even your thesis materializes, but your option expires. You stand to lose the entire premium pay without gaining anything. Therefore, it is crucial to evaluate the cost of an option in relation to a reasonable estimate of your investment thesis time horizon. Great. Well, since it's our first episode, perhaps we should start out by discussing our investment process. Shall we? Sure. That's a very good start. Our core investment framework is wrapped around the three-way reaction function between the macroeconomy as in growth and inflation, the actions of fiscal and monetary authorities, and the capital market. Fiscal and monetary authority will react to growth and inflation. At the same time, capital market will price the expected growth, expected inflation, and they will react to fiscal and monetary policy and the changes in the outlook of growth and inflation. Capital markets in return may also impact either positively or negatively the real economy. So we examine this dynamic process through the lens of cycles, liquidity, and the market structure. Hmm. Well, sounds complicated, but interesting. Well, so let's um, do a deep dive. First of all, let's talk about cycles. What are these cycles and um, how are they useful to us? Sure. So for us, everything is a cycle. There are life cycles, weather cycles, calendar cycles, and etc. So we examine the three-way reaction function mainly through the lens of cycles. So one example, we developed a core thesis back in Q3 to 20, which is that inflation 
would have a secular shift from past four decades of disinflation trend, which started in early 1980s, to a higher inflation environment in the decades to come. We can dig into this in our future episode to discuss this. And that is a very long secular uh, cycle about inflation. Now, here is another example of a long-term secular cycle related to this, but separate from inflation outlook. We expect the world to transition out of post-war unipolar world into a multipolar world where US and China rivalry will be key driver of geopolitics and will have huge impacts on global supply chain, technological development, and the global trades, etc. Right. Well, we talk a lot about this and we, we agree on this. But you need to tell me how we're going to make money out of this, but we can come to that later. So let's turn back to inflation. You called for high inflation in already back in Q3 2020. I remember you wrote about it quite extensively at the time. And kudos for you to make the call of a highly inflationary environment to come at the time of the pandemic abyss in 2020. But you also correctly anticipated peak inflation as coming mid last year and continue and you continue to expect inflation to come down. Now, isn't this a bit contradictory to your secular view? Don't you think so? Not at all. So embedded within these secular cycles, there are economic cycles, which in turn will drive inflation cycles. Economic cycles typically last from five to 10 years. As you know, we are inching towards the end of the market cycle. Inflation typically falls during the secular economic, economic downturn. Okay, so within the context of secular higher inflation, you expect inflation to fall from cyclical from a cyclical perspective because of the stage of the economic cycle we currently are in. So let's go to the economic cycle and discuss that one, shall we? Sure. So in the long run, economic cycle would equal to population growth multiplied by number of working hours multiplied by productivity. As you know, in the absolute free market environment, the economic cycles are mainly driven by production cycle. Excessive capacity and production are built upon strong demand and expected even stronger demand, resulting in down cycle when production materially exceeds demand. Obviously, our economy is not is only partially influenced by invisible hand because central bank and the fiscal authority are increasingly the key driver of market cycle. Our economic cycle are primarily driven by credit cycle, which in turn has been driven by interest, interest rate cycle. So here in this presentation, we show the, uh, the, the Fed fund rate and our market cycle. So the red, red one is the Fed fund rate and the purple one is the market cycle. So in the past four decades, as you can see, economic cycle ended when Fed raised interest rates to fight inflation by dampening demand. And a new cycle started when Fed cut interest rate. Each time, in order to stimulate the economy, the Fed had to cut interest rate lower than previous cycle low, and it was able to raise, raise higher 
than the previous, was not able to raise the interest rate higher than the previous high before recession hit. This continued until essentially interest rate hit zero. And with negligible interest rate, the Fed has to resort to QE to further stimulate economy after subprime crisis. In, in 2019, we anticipated that a fast monetization of a Federal Reserve's government fiscal stimulus would become the predominant policy tool to deal with economic downturn. The rest is history after COVID-19. The recent series of interest rate hike is both steepest and the fastest in the past four decades. We do believe that these restrictive monetary policies are likely to result in a severe economic slowdown, a recession, in the not so distant future. Ultimately, Fed will be forced to oscillate between a pendulum from one side, raising interest rates to contain inflation while risking recession and financial stability to the other side of the path, which is lowering interest rates and resorting to QE in order to maintain financial stability and revive economic growth while risking unanchored inflation. We think economic cycle will probably become shorter and more volatile than before. While timing is always not an easy task, we continue to expect the pendulum to swing from current regime of high interest rate to cutting interest rate and the reviving QE sometime this year, later this year or in 2024, likely as a result of severe economic recession. Okay, interesting. So, but tell me, what would an investor actually do with your Michael Cycle assessment? How would they use this? Well, it has everything to do with what type of investor you are and what your time horizon is. All these market cycles discussion are not relevant for a very short-term uh, traders who mainly focus on price action driven by flows, market structure, and the market positioning. For a longer-term investor, we think it's time to be very defensive, to preserve dry powder that can be invested in assets that will benefit the economic downturn as the economic downturn starts. For us, our focus is the next few quarters out to a horizon of one to two years. And our aim is to generate return during both the market downturn and upturn. Okay, makes sense. Are there any other cycles that you also look at? Yes. So related, but separate from economic cycles, you can, there's interest rate cycle, US dollar cycles. So they are all related, but different. Product cycle, investment cycle is another example. The boom and bust of commodity cycle is an example. The overinvestment in reaction to booming demand results in excess capacity during the economic downturn. After a long period of underinvestment, capacity becomes scarce again, resulting in rising commodity prices because the investment cycle in commodities has a long lead time. As a result, commodity price trends can be sustained for a long period of time. So, Jim, you have mentioned economic growth and inflation a lot. How do you forecast growth and inflation? And as we all know, the economy is not the stock market. There is no obvious correlation between economic growth and the fortunes of the stock market. Sometimes economic growth and the stock markets are negatively correlated. 
So um, this is very confusing. So, so what's the point of studying the economy? I completely agree. There are no GDP swap product, right? Even you forecast the GDP well, I mean, it doesn't mean you will profit from it. Uh, and although you, you actually can uh, trade inflation. So we are not economists and we do not claim to be able to forecast economic growth and inflation. Our main purpose is studying growth and inflation are two reasons. Uh, first, uh, we are interested in the direction of growth and inflation, whether they are accelerating or decelerating based mm -hmm. on the leading economic indicators. We compare that against what is priced by different asset classes to see if the pricing is consistent across different asset classes. When the future economic development transpires differently than what is being priced in the asset price, we are likely to see large changes in relative asset prices. So in the presentation, we have this two by two quadrant of growth and uh, inflation. Great. So Herrick, do you want to explain this? Sure. Um, yeah, so I will say what Jim said, but in my own words, uh, slightly differently. So basically, this is a this chart shows a common fundamental framework for analyzing the interactions between the economy on the one hand and on the other hand, the markets. So it's important to find a connection for how these two aspects work together. Most likely you're already familiar with this framework. Uh, however, we find it useful to use this framework as a starting point for discussing our approach to investing because it will highlight some of the things that we believe that we are good at and that we look at. This chart shows the structure of the framework, though, of course, every manager has his own propriety take on the specifics. And this is a very simplified version of what most people use. And as Jim said, the economy is modeled as having two overarching drivers, changes in inflation and changes in growth. And for each of these two by two, i.e. four combinations, we show the types of securities exposures that stand to benefit if a particular scenario plays out. Mapping out possible future scenarios is useful because it informs portfolio construction. How exactly these scenarios impact portfolio construction, of course, is a function of the investment mandate. And a global macro fund would have a different investment objective from, say, a tail hedging strategy. But they could still both use this type of framework. So using this type of framework, it makes sense to think about market prices in terms of the phrase, what has been priced in by the market? In other words, the perceived relative richness and cheapness of different asset classes and instruments tells us about what investors in the aggregate think about the future. If the assets in a particular quadrant seem expensive, by whatever standards that you believe in or that you like to apply or, or judge them by, then this is a sign that, in the aggregate, investors think that this particular scenario has a high probability of coming to pass. Now, if the future plays out as the market expects, returns will be muted because the outcome was, probabilistically speaking, already priced in. However, if one of the less likely scenarios comes to be, expectations will change. And as Jim said, 
asset prices, relative prices, will reprice. In other words, it pays to have an investment process that examines the pricing of instruments in the lower probability quadrants, because this is the key to finding trades that have the potential for great asymmetric payoffs. Is it worth investing in these trades that have these potentially great payoffs? Well, it depends on your investment mandate and how you assess inflation and growth. If you have an insightful methodology for detecting possible non-consensus non outcomes, it could serve you well, at least over several business cycles. Jim. Yeah, so it sounds a little bit abstract uh, for our listeners. Uh, and uh, so maybe it's better, it's, it's good to show some examples of asset prices reaction function to both economic development and the fiscal monetary policy, for example. Um, so here, um, for the podcast listeners, you may not be able to see the grid, but essentially I have four by four quadrant again. Uh, one is interest rate rising a scenario and the interest rate falling scenario. And then and on the other side, there's a curve steepens and a curve flatten. So people always say bull steepening and bull flattening, a bear steepening and a bear flattening. Those basically will describe these four quadrants. So let me explain. When the interest rate falls and curves deepen, that is typically an easing market cycle. And the people, you know, we, we call it bull steepening. So that's basically market anticipate fed with a cut interest rate in, anticipate, in anticipation of an economic slowdown or recession. And the short end rates fall faster than long dated rates. So interest rate fall and the curve steepen. And that typically start right before recession. And through once the Fed cut the interest rate, depending how fast they price that in, the interest rate may continue to fall and the curve continue to steepen. Ironically, when the economic expansion takes hold, in other words, when people believe that we are out of recession and the economy is expanding, that's the time interest rates start to rise and the curve started to flatten. So we call it bear flattening. And that can last a long time. So contrary to a lot of people's expectation, curve flattening is a bad thing. That's not true. During the economic expansion, typically interest rate rise and the curve flatten. And that is because people expect expansion will continue and the Fed will tighten interest rate to deal with inflation. Okay, so typically the market cycle will typically oscillate between these two from, from the bull steepening which is a recessionary environment where Fed tried to stimulate economy to bear flattening when the interest rate rising and the curve are flattened because, due, because of the economic expansion. Now, there's another two quadrant, which is not usual, where basically interest rate is rising and the curve continue to steepen. And that basically means people anticipate there's inflation and the people anticipate the Fed would be behind the inflation curve, all right? And another 
opposite of this quadrant is interest rate falling and the curve steepen, and, and the curve flatten. In other words, short dated interest rate fall and the long dated interest rate falls more. Okay, that basically means that the stimulus, the, 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 the stimulus is not enough and the Fed is behind the disinflation curve. In other words, market expect de you know, de deflation and uh, uh, market expect that Fed current monetary policy is not strong enough. And in this quadrant is very rare. So if we, if we look at our current cycle, what we have experienced after, um, I would say in the past two years, is basically rising interest rate and the curve flatten. That is a typical monetary tightening cycle. What we are expecting right now is that we think we're gonna transition into another quadrant, which is basically falling interest rate and the curve steeper. And that is the indication of pending recession, an indication at the Fed would cut interest rate in reaction to economic growth. Depending what curve you're looking at, and typically it will react much, it will, it, it will price that in a few quarters ahead of Fed cut interest rate. So, um, therefore, the transition from the bear flattening to bull steepening is a key recession indicators that we watch. I can show another example because inflation is a very hot topic. So, for those who do not have access to, you know, do not access to the videos, you can also see um, the, you, you can visualize that I have four by four quadrant again. On one end, I have a rising break even, basically is inflation expectation priced by the tip market or inflation swap market. So rising break even, falling break even. So rising breaks even, basically investors are expecting the future inflation to go higher. Falling break even, people are expecting inflation in the future going lower. Of course, you can also have this inflation curve. You can have a steepening inflation curve and then you have a flattening inflation curve. And that will give you a lot of signals. See, for example, when inflation was falling, and the curve was steepening, okay? So that is in quadrant one, temporary disinflation shock. Typically that happens after, during the recession. Um, as we can see during the pandemic, the inflation break even fall. However, the longer term inflation is in, in, inflation continue to be anchored. As a result, the curve steepened. So that's one of our reasons that we were not in the camp of permanent deflation when the recession uh, shock uh, hit during the pandemic. On the other hand, when the inflation, when the inflation, the, when the break even rise, in other words, the future expectation of inflation goes higher, but at the same time, the curve flatten. That basically uh, means that the the inflation expectation is actually anchored despite of rising break even. That's typically it's because the central banks are hawkish um, and raising the interest rate and have very credible reaction function. And that's part of the reason 
that last year that we basically say that the Fed reaction function to the inflation is very credible. And the way we look at it is that despite of a break even, rising break even, we see the curve start to, to flatten. And obviously, there is another two quadrant, which is highly unusual. One is break, rising break even and the curve steepen. In other words, inflation expectation is going higher and is led by the longer dated. And that will mean unanchored inflation expectation. We have not seen that yet in the United States. We have seen that in the part of the in the other part of the emerging markets. Could this happen in the future? Maybe, and uh, we will just observe the uh, the market pricing as it goes. On the other hand, you can also have a falling break even, and the inflation um, curve flatten, and that is basically showing you that the inflation pressure is prolonged. And whatever fiscal and monetary policy that the, 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 the government are doing is just not enough to revive the inflation. And we have seen that in Japan for a long period of time. So I hope that I show you some of the examples of the market reaction functions so people understand what do, you, what, what, what do we mean when the market is priced different economic uh, scenarios. Right. Well, this is very interesting and uh, illustrative. And I always like it when you uh, discuss these reaction functions and, and you know, in particular how central banks and fiscal authorities respond to economic data and asset prices. I must say, though, that listening to Chair Powell yesterday, that's on the 21st at his uh, press conference, when he said that he really doesn't know why the economy is as strong as it is, makes me wonder a little bit how things are going to play out here. Jim? Yeah, sure. Um, and, uh, in, and, you know, embedded within, we are also interested in the reaction function of central bank and physical authorities to the eco economic data and the asset prices. And um, as I mentioned to you, Henry, part of the reason we are interested in the growth and inflation is also because we are more interested uh, in the reaction function of the, 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 the fiscal and the, and the central bankers uh, to the growth and the inflation expectations. And this is because capital market will react to the, uh, the fiscal and the monetary policies. Um, and this is very important. So I, I have a, um, another grid here. Um, and listeners, if you do not uh, access to the videos, um, you can just visualize that we have another four by four um, kind of a grid uh, by two dimensions. One is the monetary, um, you know, one is the monetary policy, and then the other one is the fiscal policy. And uh, so monetary policy, you can have a tightening uh, regime and you can have an easing regime. In the fiscal policy, you can also have tightening regime and the easing regime, okay? And uh, the way these two works will have a big impact on economy and, uh, and the capital market. So um, let's just see one example. During the pandemic, we basically have an easing monetary policy. Fed cut its interest rate to zero, restarted QE, and the central government started unprecedented stimulus, and they were all monetized by central bank. So in this regime, we'll call it a dual engine. So in this regime, 
both you know, economy and the financial market will perform very well. Literally every financial asset will rally. You can buy literally everything. I cannot recall you know, anything that hasn't gone up, right? And uh, during the time, I think the um, people always say, oh, economy is not doing well, have such a high unemployment rate and et cetera. How come financial market perform so well? I mean, that's classic. The financial market typically outperform economy. And uh, during that time, you know, although the, you know, the, the, the inflation data come out uh, to show the deflation, but the inflation risk actually start to rise, currency depreciate, and that's interest rate curve steepen. Um, I would say, you know, the long dated treasury perform, probably performed the worst. Uh, although, you know, the, 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 the underperformance is, is, is very uh, muted because the monetary policy is easy. And then we would transition uh, into the next, you know, I, I would say after that, we transition into the next regime, which is tightening uh, monetary policy. But the fiscal policy continued to be loose in the past two years. So in this environment, that the economy will outperform the financial market. And think about um, the, you know, the GDP growth uh, was very high in the past two years. And think about the financial market. I mean, if you look at, doesn't matter how you measure it, uh, the balanced portfolio experienced the worst drawdown. And, uh, you know, risk parity, you know, has gone down a lot. And uh, obviously, you know, this is a lot is driven by the bond market. But if you look at the equity market, you know, still significantly lower than the high, uh, especially if you look at, the, you know, the mid cap and the small cap and uh, even the large cap, you know, you are still down in the water. So relative to the economy, the financial market is not doing well. And that is because, you know, you have tightening monetary policy, but you have easing physical policy. And during this environment, bond will sell off. Curves will flatten, inflation rise, inflation, you know, stays high, but it's under control. Currency is strong. Now, the price of, a, of risk asset, like a stock, is tricky. Okay, it depends on the balance between the physical and the monetary policy, the valuations and the positioning. Like I said, in a bond significantly underperform, if you adjust for the volatility, the bond significantly underperform stocks. That's because of this physical. Uh, policy from the government and a tightening monetary policy that would result in this. Okay, and in this environment, sector and the security selection are critical. Now, that is the environment we are in right now. So what's going to be next regime? I would say next regime is going to be the regime of tight, continue tighten monetary policy because the Fed will keep the tighten monetary policy for longer. At least that's the intention in the absence of significant economic slowdown and significant disruption of the financial asset. At the same time, we also see that the fiscal policy, we do not want to say they are tightening, but I think relative to the easing, the, the significant uh, fiscal stimulus we have seen, they are fading away. So in this case, we, we expect both economy and the financial asset to perform poorly. U.S. dollar may continue to be strong. Uh, in this environment, cash and the short-dated treasury are the best performers. Uh, and obviously, we once the downturn hit, okay, uh, we expect that the monetary policy to turn out to be ease again. And because the fiscal policy 
because we basically have opened the Pan Pandora box for the fiscal policy, we expect the Fed, we expect the Fed, you know, the uh, the government to embark another round of fiscal stimulus, and we expect the central, you know, because of the debt levels and uh, the leverage of the entire financial system, we expect the central bank to come in and monetize them again. In other words, we will see the regime of easing monetary policy and easing physical policy again, but that will only after the recession hit. So that's our current framework. Now, understanding this framework is very, very important because for example, people are puzzled that uh, in Europe, that uh, in the past, uh, I would say since uh, the uh, financial subprime financial crisis, both in Europe and in Japan, we have extremely easy you know, monetary policy in those countries. And yet the economic is not, is not uh, progressing very well. And that is because they have a lack of fiscal policy. In Europe, you have a European Union where make the fiscal policy a lot more difficult. And uh, so in that environment, as you can see here in our grid, in the easing monetary policy and, uh, and the tightening uh, physical policy, and that's the time financial market typically outperform the economy. And the longer duration asset outperform, technology stocks, long duration stocks, they actually all come to the United States. In other words, a lot of the QE money from Europe and Japan actually came to the US and their own currency weakens. You know, European currency weaken, Euro, you know, Japanese yen weaken. And uh, now the inflation really depends on the net balance of physical and the monetary policy and uh, generating the immunity. As you can see, despite of record QE uh, in Japan and also in Europe, I mean, inflation it was not a problem before the, before the pandemic. And that is because despite of all the easing uh, monetary policy, uh, fiscal policy was very tight. I would say this is also changing in the, in the future, uh, particularly in Europe. Uh, and uh, uh, that is because the green uh, infrastructure build, build out, the greenification of, of economy requires significant investment. And uh, after pandemic is getting a uh, consensus for them to uh, go green. Uh, at the same time, the war uh, in Ukraine uh, is, you know, has resulted in the European countries to be more united and, uh, um, and uh, to pivot away from the energy reliance, uh, the reliance on the Russian energy, uh, they are building, uh, rebuild, uh, rebuilding uh, energy infrastructure. So all those, um, so I can expect um, Europe to embark on physical uh, stimulus upon the next recession and also um, they will be monetized by the central banks. And that will result in the dual engine as well. So I think it's, for now, I think it's, it's important uh, to go through um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the environment that we're gonna have, which probably is gonna be a little bit difficult for most investors, where it's tightening a monetary policy, but not much fiscal policies uh, because of inflations and the elevated uh, you know, elevated asset prices and uh, and the seemingly uh, robust economic uh, outlook. Uh, however, under the hook, and we can see a lot of a crack already showed. So we can uh, we can cover those uh, in the future. Uh, the key message here is it's important to go through this time period uh, and whether 
uh, this time period. And uh, I think in reaction of the next downturn, we probably will have uh, easing monetary easing fiscal policy and easing monetary policy again. For now, I think the predominant thesis, I think we're going to transition into uh, continued tightened monetary policy, waiting fiscal policy, and that is disinflationary. Uh, and that's kind of the environment we're expecting uh, to trans transition into. Okay, very interesting. Now, here, Jim, you, you, you managed to talk about global monetary and fiscal policies without actually saying the L word, I mean liquidity. So could you talk about liquidity a little bit more specifically? And how do you measure it anyway? Yeah, that's right. Uh, we believe liquidity is the primary driver for the overall levels of asset prices. So in the environment of rising liquidity, most assets will rally. The valuation, positioning, and growth expectation between different sectors, um, they matters, but they determine which asset prices will benefit from benefit more from rising liquidity. In the environment of stable liquidity, general asset prices level may range bound, and some may outperform the other, uh, depending on the fundamentals, growth expectation, etc. In the environment of falling liquidity, asset prices will generally fall. Asset prices that are both overvalued relative to the economic, future economic um, uh, growth expectations, or they are heavily positioned and crowded, and they will suffer more than the others. So the different people have a different interpretation of liquidity. And um, how do you define it? How do you measure it? For our purpose, the liquidity is defined as the dry powder to available to buy financial assets. So we are only focused on the liquidity to buy financial asset. We do not think there is a single magic bullet to measure uh, the liquidity, but I think one need to put different pieces of puzzle together to have a mosaic picture. And here are some of the pieces. An obvious starting point is to measure the change of monetary base. The logic is very simple. The monetary base through velocity can flow into real economy Okay, or they can flow into the financial asset. It can cause the inflation um, of the inflation. It can also raise the price of the financial asset. And you can do so with or without leverage. In other words, liquidity is amount of money that leads to real economic growth, inflation in the price of goods and services, and inflation of asset price. In, the in addition, the same magnitude of the change of M2 matters more when overall market capitalization is small and it matters less when the overall market capitalization is large. So in other words, we are interested in how they are imp impacting the asset prices and how big is the magnitude. Therefore, our access liquidity is defined as the following. The year, year over year change of M2 minors the year-over-year -year change in real GDP minus year-over-year -year change of inflation. And then we divide that excess liquidity by the global capital, uh, global market capitalization. So in other words, our global liquidity index measures the ratio of incremental excess liquidity against the global market capitalization. But, you know, a lot of people using this index and uh, we do not think that this is a magic bullet. This explains part of the puzzle. 
related to this liquidity, related to the liquidity, but very separate from this is the U.S. Treasury funding gap, which has increasingly become a key determinant of liquidity condition. When Treasury increases net issuance of debt because of deficit, the supply of financial securities increases. Thus, holding everything else unchanged. This will create downward pressure on liquidity because treasury securities need to be funded by liquidation of other financial assets. Of course, everything else is not equal. There are many financial, financial market participants who are not ec economically driven and who have a strong demand for these securities, thus providing liquidity. For example, in the past, emerging market central bank reserve managers and the countries with trade surpluses, like China, like Japan, have been unconditional buyers of U.S. Treasury securities. Following the subprime crisis of 2008, then the Federal Reserve became the major buyer to monetize U.S. fiscal spending. Additionally, because of a record low interest rate, European and Japanese investors have purchased U.S. securities for higher yield. In other words, the global QE capital has all come to the United States. Now, the future could not be more different than the past. Looking ahead, we can see on the supply side, there is a record issuance of U.S. Treasury because of the, uh, because of the physical deficit. As you can see, our physical deficit is the largest uh, outside of the recession time period, which you know, is, is close to um, the post-financial post uh, post crisis during the subprime crisis. While on the demand side, we see less demand from reserve managers. Um, and um, right now, the Fed is, they are not engaging in QT, um, and uh, they are engaging in QT uh, rather than QE. Right. So intuitively speaking, these supply and demand imbalances for treasuries must mean a big drop of treasury prices and a corresponding large spike in treasury yields. Because, well, that's the shall we say, conventional story that you can read about in newspapers and hear pundits talk about on, on TV. But you have a different outlook, Jim. You believe this supply and demand imbalance may actually result in higher treasury prices and lower yields. Is that right? And, and how's that? Yeah, that's right. And there's a counterintuitive uh, because if you just follow the supply and the demand law, and I think the conclusion is very obvious, and uh, sometimes when the things is obvious, when they are so obvious and they can be obviously wrong, um, because everyone can see this, you know, uh, see this come, come, come. And uh, we have just simply pointed out the obvious one. Um, and, uh, but I think the net effects of these impacts are not obvious, okay? And as I see, the drain of the liquidity will result in the overall level of the financial asset prices. However, how that pressure is distributed within the financial asset is a question. We could well result in a lower treasury yield in the near future. And uh, so how's that? I think probably it's worthwhile for us to have another podcast dedicated to this and uh, so that we have more time. Okay, well, that sounds very interesting. Um, there's so much to talk about, but not enough time as always. So now, is there anything else you would like to say about liquidity? Uh, yes. It is important to know that the amount of dry powder 
not only depends on the amount of available capital, but also on the potential leverage. In other words, liquidity equals capital multiplied by leverage. As you always see, listen to the people on the new, you know, uh, in the, the pundits and uh, uh, the, 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 your newspapers, and they always say that the money has to go somewhere. Is that true? Wrong. Money can simply evaporate. And the key reason is leverage. In the unlevered world, capital can rotate from one asset class to another. In the levered world, the deleveraging would result in lower prices for all the asset classes. This is why understanding the dealer financing, repo financing is important. Why? Because levered financial players rely on repo and dealer financing. At the same time, there are many other factors that may impact leverage, hence liquidity. For example, the vol targeting funds typically increase exposure when volatility falls and vice versa. So therefore, one of the main reasons that falling volatility result in higher asset prices become self-reinforcing. So believe it or not, higher leverage, higher the increasing of leverage will increase the liquidity. Right, fascinating. Um... Now, this is a good segue to the last piece of our, our of the puzzle or our topic, institutional factors, at least some of them. So market structure and positioning. And what do we mean by that? And why do these structural factors matter? Right. So that's also a very complex topic. And that is one of the puzzles we have. Understanding the market structure is important. Financial as financial prices, they are driven by the flows relative to stock. A few percent change of transaction volume can have impact on the prices of assets with trillions in market cap. Asset managers can be categorized into two groups, allocators and the asset class specialist. The amount of capital into each asset class is primarily determined by the allocators whether they are institutional investors such as pension, endowment, family offices, or wealth management, retail, uh, retail investors, 401ks, etc. Believe it or not, asset class specialists have little impact on overall allocation into a particular asset class. Their job is to deliver excess return over the general price level of that particular asset classes. The capital allocators do not really allocate capital based on the valuations, economic fundamentals, all these things we're talking about, nor based on quantitative measures, and, but rather they are primarily driven by the long-term strategic asset allocations, which in turn are driven by their liabilities, their risk reversion of the institution. And similarly, in the private wealth manager industry, allocations are determined by client's age, risk reversion, expanded spending power. So in other words, valuation, you know, market cycles, all these economic, economic discussions, none of them matters for them. Uh, whatever matters for them is the client's specific age, risk aversion, et cetera. So the fact that asset allocators do not really allocate capital based on the economic, e economical decisions, 
and the specialists have very little impact on the overall level of allocation into a particular asset classes, have a big implication for the behavior of asset prices. So thus, these institutional circumstances impact our investment process. Hmm. It's almost shocking. Tell me more about this. Well, the first implication is most of the time, asset prices are determined by levered players who can change the exposure to the asset classes with finite capital. So although their capital is finite, but they can increase and decrease through leverage. And also, there are a small number of players who actually have the flexibility to allocate the capital based on economic reasons. And that's part of the reason we think measuring the market positioning uh, is important. And how do you look at that? There's numerous ways you can do that. You can look at CFTC futures exposures. You can also look at option volatilities and then look at the put and cost skews and et cetera. Now, the second implication is that asset market may send a conflicting message about the same macro landscape because of industry specialization. For example, at the current juncture, the interest rate market is partially pricing economic, weak economic growth and a potential recession. But the stock market is pricing rising earnings and accelerated growth. These two messages are odd with each other. Why that's the case? Well, you have bond traders and then you have equity investors and they are not the same group of investors. And allocators are not making decisions saying one asset class is more expensive or cheaper than the other and make a decision based on that. Another insight is that asset market may send early signals about potential changes in macro conditions. For example, Drunken Miller, you often always say that the best economists are in the stock market. How's that? This is because the amount of unlevered capital allocated into the overall equity market is determined by asset allocators. I repeat, the amount of unlevered capital, okay? But we just mentioned the asset allocators actually do not allocate capital based on economic factors. Now, let us assume that the equity specialists to whom the asset allocators have entrusted capital, they foresee recession. They foresee falling recession based on their forecast, either from fundamental analysis, bottom up from company, or from the top-down analysis. The specialist will not liquidate the equity investment and tell the investor, here's your money back. So what are they going to do? Rather, they will reallocate the capital into the sub-asset classes where they believe will weather the recession better. Say, for example, the utilities, the stables, and that's why there will be the outperform and unperform, all outperformance between different sectors. So the opposite is also true when they, uh, when they expect economic expansion. So that's why we pay a lot of attention to the performance divergence and convergence between different sectors and the regions. Finally, I mean, the division of labor and the way allocators evaluate the performance of specialists often result in the boom and bust cycles of numerous asset classes. And I would say that is always almost inevitable. As you can easily notice, the best performing specialist may not be the one with the best skills, but rather they are in the right trending asset classes at the right time. And asset managers will pick 
who is the who delivered the best performance in the past few uh, in the in the past few years, and that that may well be you are just basically picking the winning asset classes in the past few years, because the underperforming specialists will get redeemed and lose AUM, so they are forced to chase the winning position, and this will become self-reinforcing and often resides in bubble. And that's the primary reason bubbles can grow bigger and bigger and longer and longer than anything we can explain rationally in the macro framework. Right. Well, this is, well, topic, I mean, bubbles is an interesting topic, but it's a big one. So we'll save that for future episodes. Now, this has been a long and productive discussion, I think. So we covered your investment framework and process with focuses on the three-way interactions between the macroeconomy, the fiscal monetary authorities, and the capital markets. We then dug into each of the key components and also touched upon cycles, liquidity, market structure, and positioning. And this, I, I believe, should provide a good high-level overview of, of the framework that you have. Now, the best way to illustrate this process and, and how you apply the framework would probably be to apply this in real term, sorry, in real time in the future so that you can track what we actually think and are doing. And we can use our analytics as a compass to navigate the capital markets and explain how we think. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, I completely agree. And I hope this does not come out as boring for our listeners. Well, as your co-host, I have to say, not for me at least. I, I always enjoy listening to you. Now, I've been around for a long time with different institutions on the sell side, such as Solomon Brothers, and buy side firms such as hedge funds and wealth management advisory firms. I, and I have to say that your perspective is different and refreshing, sometimes unconventional, but, but always thought-provoking. Our views and conclusions as a firm and as a business can be right or wrong. However, I believe that understanding the thinking and analytic processes behind the views is very important because this will help us improve our framework as the, word, as the world changes. And I hope these insights can be additive to the listeners' own processes and frameworks. I completely agree, Harry. So tell our listeners how they can follow us. Absolutely. You can follow us by searching Total Convexity in your favorite podcast apps or via YouTube. Please don't forget to click on the subscription buttons, if there are any, so that you will be automatically notified when a new episode is available. You can also follow us on X, that is the old Twitter, where we have the handle at Total Convexity. You can also email us at totalconvexity at gmail.com. Finally, you can follow our insights on Substack at totalconvexity.substack.com. We will never spam your email boxes or provide any sort of advertising or marketing. All you will get is our honest take on the markets, rightly or wrongly, right or wrong, and we will try and make it short and sweet. Anything else, Jim? Thank you, everyone. That's it. Uh, if you like this free podcast, we would appreciate if you can pass along to anyone who may be interested. And this concludes the first episode of our podcast, Total Convexity. See you next time.
Disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Consult with a qualified financial professional before making any financial decisions. All investments involve risks. There are no guarantees of profits and investments may incur losses. The contents discussed in this podcast is not a recommendation for any specific investment. Past performance does not predict future results. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are their own and may not necessarily reflect the views of the hosts or affiliated parties. The podcast host and guests may have financial interests in companies or products discussed, and listeners should be aware that the opinions expressed by guests and their hosts may reflect biases. We strive for accuracy, but financial information can change rapidly. The content may not always be up to date or complete, so verify information independently. This podcast does not offer legal or regulatory advice, and listeners are responsible for ensuring that their financial decisions comply with applicable laws and regulations. Mentions of specific financial products or services do not constitute endorsements. Perform your due diligence before engaging with any financial offering. Listeners are fully responsible for their financial decisions, and the podcast's guests, hosts, and affiliated entities are not liable for any financial losses resulting from actions taken on based on the provided contents.